Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. You can check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis, and it's where you can find details of our online events, including on March 14th, Hal Brands on his new book, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry. Coming up on the show today, Dwight Chapin, author of the new book, The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. Uh, Dwight, welcome to Bookstack. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, Richard. And essentially, this is a memoir of your time working for President Richard Nixon. Yes, it is. It, it covers the, uh, the period when I first met him and goes through to the period that I was in the working with him into the White House. And you really, you came to work for uh, Nixon really through H.R. Uh, Haldeman, uh, who goes on then to be his, uh, Nixon's chief of staff. Yes, I, uh, as a young man, I was going to the University of Southern California and I went in for an interview. I, I was always supposed to have a summer job and I didn't have one in the summer of 62. And I went in and this young 35-year-old man by the name of Bob Haldeman interviewed me and hired me. And that was the start of my relationship, not only with Bob, but obviously with uh, Mr. Nixon. I mean, it's one of the the things that I always find fascinating about politics, that very often uh, the the aides who are closest to uh, a political figure are very young because they have to have the kind of the energy, the, that ability to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to bed at one o'clock in the morning. Um, and you really were close to him. You were responsible. You were his advance man. You were often responsible for uh, waking him up. Um, you were even the person who, in 1968, went in and was the first person to tell him that he had become president of the United States. Yes, that was a that was a uh, a moment in history that uh, no one take away, and was a, a real thrill to let him know that after all of, all the work he had put into capturing that office, he had finally won. And you're right; he believed in using young people. Uh, as as the various campaigns that I witnessed with him uh, unfolded, he would always uh, find things for people that had been in previous campaigns to do. Uh, they would serve on task force or write white papers or uh, any number of different things. But he always was looking for young people and bringing in young, fresh talent uh, for the purpose that you outlined, the energy and the the sense of enthusiasm, and also uh, the the new people that hadn't been there before were a little on the hung were on the hungry side. They wanted to win. They had a certain attitude, and he liked that. I mean, we all think that we know Richard Nixon, but uh, you really did know him. What what was he like to work for? Well, f with with me, President Nixon was uh, very. Uh, congenial, uh, very nice, uh, no drama whatsoever. Uh, but that was also part of my training. I, I was taught early on to what the do's and don'ts of working with Richard Nixon were. And uh, to give you an example, uh, he, he did not like any, any surprises. He, we, we had a schedule we ran our operation almost like a Swiss watch. Everything worked exactly the way we laid it out. 
and he, he, he didn't uh, like surprises or unexpected things. He liked consistency. So uh, I, as a young man in the training process, I learned how it was that he functioned best. And then my job was to maintain that kind of environment around him as we proceeded through the various campaigns. And it, I, I was very struck as well that, uh, that he, he hates wrong answers. He, he, do, he doesn't necessarily need you to know, but as you quote uh, in the book, that very often uh, your answer to him, you learnt quite quickly, had to be, I don't know, sir, but I'll find out. But it was never to give, the, to give him the wrong information or pretend you knew something that you didn't. That was a very wonderful piece of advice Given to, given to me by Bob Haldeman when I first started in the AIDS position. He said, the best way to handle things is if he asks you a question and you don't know the answer, do not try to BS him. That would be the worst possible, possible reaction. The answer would be, sir, I don't know, but I'll find out. And I had to, I had to say that a few times, I guarantee you. So after Richard Nixon wins the presidency, you go with him to the White House. Uh, you become appointment secretary, a special assistant to the president. Uh, and we all know that real estate matters uh, in the West Wing. You have an office with a door uh, to the Oval Office. And uh, I might point out uh, somewhat to the chagrin uh, of Bob Holderman, uh, a desk that's actually bigger than his to, to start with. Well, I, let, let me point out that Bob Haldeman and I went in to check out the, uh, the, the layout of the White House right after the inaugural parade, before the inaugural ball. So this is on the 20th of January, 1969. And we walked into the area that was to be my office, which was right between the Oval Office and the Cabinet Room. And I swear that the desk took up most of the room. I mean, it was a massive desk out of proportion to the room itself and definitely out of proportion to uh, my, my position as, a, as the personal aide. So by morning, we had the right size desk in that room. President Nixon never saw that big desk. <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the things that is is striking in the book is that even though you go through some real, I mean, some of the most consequential difficulties in all American political history during your career, but uh, you, you never you never get jaded with the White House. You loved working in the White House. You loved working for Richard Nixon, in spite of everything that was to come. Yes, uh, there was a uh, very wise man by the name of Bryce Harlow. And Bryce was in charge of congressional affairs. Uh, later, he became a counselor to the president. And he had worked for uh, General Eisenhower when Eisenhower was president. And he, he gave us a little lecture at the very outset, but during the uh, transition year uh, months prior to Nixon being uh, sworn in as president. And Bryce, Bryce made the point to us that how, what a privilege this was to serve a president in the White House and how we should never, ever take it for granted. It, it, it was going to be for a period of time. It was a temporary thing. We should relish it, but we should keep it all in perspective. 
and it was one it was one of the great pieces of pieces of advice and and so i i like to believe that i was able to internalize what bryce had said and that i looked at my days in the white house as as being a per- period of privilege and uh, every single day there was in- incredibly special and ones for which i am extremely grateful for and you know when you're actually inside the white house when you're in the oval office or when you go to richard nixon's uh, private office that he had in the, in the oeb i mean what what was it what was it like i mean richard nixon was somebody who was fascinated by the whole idea of the mystique of leadership uh, he used to uh, read biographies of de gaulle and churchill and uh, lincoln and so on uh, wh- how how did you experience that that sense of being in the presence working for working with the man who was quite literally the most powerful uh, political figure in the world yes that, it's a great question and uh, but it ties back, I think, to how I came into the whole process. Uh, I was 21 when I first worked for him out in California when he ran for governor after he had lost to Jack Kennedy. And then I, I, I was transferred into uh, New York, and I, uh, I went to work down at the Nixon Law Firm after, after hours. Uh, to answer correspondence. I, I did this as a volunteer. I had a job at J. Walter Thompson Advertising, but I, I would go down there and work uh, with, with Mr. Nixon's staff. And one of the principal people who really wasn't staff, but whom I worked with, was Mrs. Nixon herself. And what happened in that process uh, we would we were off in a little conference room and we were answering mail, and she really got to know me. She she knew my wife Susie. She would talk and ask about our little girls and so forth. But she she got to the point where I think there, that there was a real trust factor, and and I she conveyed that to Mr. Nixon. And so at the heart of this of my whole working relationship with the president was something that built over time and was one where, where I could be trusted. And I was young and I, I would do what I was told. I mean, it, it was a subservient relationship. I was not, the, the trust factor uh, gave me uh, a, a confidence uh, and I, I, I gather a confidence on his part because I was around for many years uh, that I could go into any given situation that he might be in. And, and it was very normal for me to be there. So, so your question is to, you know, the specialness of walking into certain meetings or being around there. For me, it was more routine. Uh, I, I don't mean that I, I I considered being there just something that was routine. I knew it was special to be there, but I, but in terms of the daily operation or something, it, it it just flowed. It was a natural flow. 
And I mean, in terms of that trust, you were trusted with some really important uh, task. For example, you were the advance man for the the famous trip to China. Uh, on the flight out uh, to China, you sat on the plane with uh, Henry Kissinger and Bob Haldeman uh, and say that you'd never seen Nixon, uh, President Nixon looking healthy or happier uh, than on that trip. But I mean, tell us what it was like to be on that uh, historic trip to China. Well, we were all we were all thrilled, uh, and everybody knew that this was something incredibly special. It was, you know, probably the greatest diplomatic journey in the history of the presidency. Uh, the whole world was watching, and I, I I like to say, and I think it's true, that through television, the entire country went to China with uh, Mr. Nixon, with President Nixon. Uh, the the work that I did in the pre-planning with Dr. Kissinger, I had made two other trips to China before I went with Nixon. Uh, the idea being that we went over, worked on the plans with the Chinese, and knew the uh, to the degree that they were willing to share what was going to happen. We we knew what to expect, and so my role was to make the president as comfortable as possible in terms of knowing how his schedule would unfold and the various events that we would do. We had 20 years later, we had a reunion in Washington at the Peace Center and Secretary Clinton came over and gave a little talk. And she said to say that, that it was the week that changed the world was an understatement. I mean, you you were on that trip. Uh, you were also on the trip uh, to uh, the Soviet Union, again, advance man for that trip when uh, President Nixon uh, signed the SALT agreement. I, I'm really fascinated. Uh, you say that you weren't involved on the strategic side, but you did get to see uh, President Nixon dealing with the likes of Mao in China, Brezhnev uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, you got to see what he was kind of trying to do strategically. I mean, we're, we're very much in a, in a kind of situation that seems to be going back to uh, many of those Cold War strategic problems for the United States. You know, what, what, uh, how, how did President Nixon deal with these kind of figures that he was uh, having to negotiate with, uh, but who were also kind of enemies in the Cold War, Mao and Brezhnev and so on? Yes, well, uh, of course, this is his... Uh stock and trade, you will. I, I believe in, in China, I, I observed that uh, while he was president, he moved to a higher level, if you will, of, 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 of statesmen. Uh, he, he was an incredibly bright strategist. He knew, he, he had thoughts on strategic plans and he had options and he had he had a huge reservoir of knowledge, having traveled uh, so extensively in uh, terms of the foreign policy area over his years as vice president, and then during the wilderness years before he came back into the presidency. So he, this was a man that was thinking ahead. He, on the China trip and the, the opening of China, the geopolitical side of that was to uh, 
put, get insert the United States into kind of a triangular uh, relationship with the, the Soviet Union and the uh, People's Republic of China. And the, the ultimate motive at that very time was to get that war in Vietnam ended. Uh, the strategic arms limitation talks was a whole other different ball game, and much much tougher in some ways. Uh, whereas the Chinese trip was extremely ceremonial, the hard work of getting the salt agreements in place, uh, a whole different uh, kind of thinking. And Dr. Kissinger and and the president had worked on that for well ever since the time that he had entered into the White House. And uh, I think he would he would be under cur current circumstances he would be uh, warning on the Russian imperialism side of of what he knew about the Soviet Union. This was a man who had studied the Soviet Union. I mean, he was known as a Cold War uh, personality, very uh, anti-communist, and uh, he he definitely had had feelings and, and, and strategic ideas as to how to manage the Soviet Union. And I, I, think, I think Nixon's, uh, Nick, the way that Nixon handled the Soviet Union was the precursor to uh, the success under Reagan and then Bush of the wall coming down and, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, these the the trip to China, the uh, the salt agreement, uh, the the sense of strategic vision. I mean, his, historians uh, of the Cold War now look look back on uh, President Nixon as as one of the most significant figures uh, in American foreign policy, and these were his triumphs. Uh, but historically, of course, he's also associated uh, with the darkest days in in the American presidency of Watergate, uh, which, as you make clear in the book, were also dark days for you. Um, what, what do you remember of Watergate and, and that uh, crisis? Well, the, the, the great tragedy of Watergate, one of the great tragedies of Watergate, is it disrupted the work that the president was doing, not only in foreign policy, but also in domestic affairs. Keep in mind that Tom Wicker, the great reporter for the New York Times, wrote a book uh, and his book focused on domestic policy and felt that Richard Nixon's domestic policy accomplishments were greater than his foreign policy accomplishments. So one of the great uh, disasters of Watergate was uh, the, the fact that Richard Nixon left the presidency. Uh, in my book, and I think it's very important that in the back, in the appendix, you'll find some tapes uh, that we the tapes were not released until 1995. This is 20-some years later after the Watergate event itself. And there's ex uh, material there that, that proves uh, beyond any doubt that the president was kept in, in, in the dark about what really happened at Watergate from, from the time in June of 1972 through until... Uh, March of 1973, the, the man that had been picked to uh, look into the matter and keep him apprised as to what the situation was, 
his name was John Dean, and he was the counsel to the president, and he he refrains from purposely, I believe, from telling the president the truth of what happened, even though John Dean knew the truth. And this is one of the reasons that that the president got led into, if if I could use that term, into the uh, the cover up, uh, not not knowing what the facts really were. Now that I am not by any uh, sense of imagination trying to uh, excuse the mistakes that President Nixon made, and he. In his interviews with David Frost, he apologized to the nation. But I think what's, what's becoming clearer to the American public, and will, and as time goes on here, will become even more clear, is that uh, there is a lot more to what happened in Watergate and how it unfolded and what Richard Nixon's role really was than we have ever known. And as that gets investigated by historians and is really thoroughly looked into, I think it's going to put uh, the Nixon presidency into a, a, a different perspective, particularly how he managed Watergate. I mean, it was a it was a personal tragedy for you as well because you'd brought Donald Segretti, one of the the characters involved in Watergate, um, kind of into the uh, into the the, the, the election campaign. Uh, they did, the White House decided that that I think the phrase that you use is it was time for a clean slate. But uh, but President Nixon doesn't speak to you personally. There's a certain ruthlessness. Uh, in the way that uh, you leave the White House, as you say, uh, you didn't go without a fight, or at least uh, without a memo. Well, uh, yes, I I felt that uh, first of all, Don Segretti was never involved in what you would know as the main Watergate event, the cover up and so forth. Both Don and and I hired Don. We we are off off to the side under a category called pranksterism or dirty tricks or whether it was more, it was, it was of a much lesser degree. Don, for example, uh, uh, charged with misdemeanors, not, not even a felony. I, I had a felony charge because I had supposedly given false information to a grand jury, false and misleading information to a grand jury. So my uh, punishment was more severe than Don Segretti's. But we were off on the pranksterism side of things, not into the main Watergate. And you know, in in terms of your feelings about the way that uh, that you were dispatched, I mean, we we also had uh, Michael Dobbs on the uh, the podcast earlier with his his book King Richard, uh, which includes uh, the tapes of some of the last calls that President Nixon had with Bob Holderman, and the just the the sense that even somebody like Holderman, who'd been the, the loyalist of loyal. Uh, supporters was dispatched with a, a certain ruthlessness. What, what what do you think that tells us about President Nixon? Or do you think that this was just something that was inevitable? Well, I, I think it tells you not only about President Nixon, but tells you about presidents. Uh, presidents have to, at some point in situations like this, cut off uh, and remove uh, people that have been 
loyal and trustworthy and worked hard for them. It's a, it's a big league. I, the, yesterday, I, I had never done this before. Yesterday, I signed a baseball, a hardball baseball. And the man that had sent me the baseball said he wanted me to write something about Watergate on the baseball. And I wrote on there, Watergate is hardball politics. And uh, I think that's what's at the bottom of this. You know, the people had to leave. The president had to uh, uh, let them go. And it's one of the realities. If you're going to play in that league and things happen, then you're going to have to going to have to leave. And it is the prerogative of the president always to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, and uh, those of us that work for him, that have the privilege of working for him, have to abide by his wishes. I, it's it's very striking that in more recent years that um, increasingly people have looked to Richard Nixon's uh, foreign policy, as you said, also his domestic policy, particularly his environmental policy, um, and tried to draw lessons uh, from his presidency that go beyond Watergate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very struck that uh, President Biden has a very similar profile to Richard Nixon in many ways. He was he was that both were senators, both both were vice presidents of the of the United States uh, before they became president. Both had a gap between the vice presidency uh, and taking up uh, and taking up the presidency. Uh, do, what do you see any other similar Similarities between them, and what do you think that uh, President uh, President Biden can learn from the the experience of the President Nixon that you saw uh, when you were working in the White House? Well, you name some similarities. Let me go at at a difference, um, and, because I think it's an incredibly significant difference. I was watching some footage of the President leaving the South grounds to go on the historic trip to China. And he walks out of the diplomatic entrance of the White House and headed for the helicopter. And there's a very large crowd of people there. And he stops and he goes to the microphone and he says, first thing he says, I wanna thank the bipartisan leaders of Congress particularly the Senate leader, Mike Mansfield, and the Speaker of the House, Carl Albert, for being here with us this morning. Now, the whole bipartisan leadership had come to bid the, farewell, bid the president farewell on that journey to China. When I first, the first week in the White House, the very first week, he had given a memorandum to me through Bob Haldeman, that said that he wanted to meet with the bipartisan leadership of Congress every week on Tuesday or Thursday, whichever day worked out. And, and he did so for well, well into his presidency. Every single week, those bipartisan leaders would come up to the, and sit in the Oval Office and they would discuss policy and uh, legislation, how they were going, how it would all work, and and Nixon had a tr had tremendous success, and he had both a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Now, in today's world, today's environment, 
when the bipartisan le- when the uh, partisan leaders come up, it's national news. I mean, they'll come up to meet with the president in the cabinet room maybe once every two or three months or something. And, and so there is no semblance of an ongoing, you know, we're going to wor- get our work accomplished and, and bring legislation forth to the American public. It's, not, it, 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 it's an entirely different era. And these men are not, these men and women are not uh, meeting and working in the interest of the country, in my opinion, like they did back when President Nixon was in office. And I, I, I suppose that really President Biden is, is one of the few people who still does seem to believe in that kind of bipartisanship. But in, in that sense, I mean, he, he was, I think he was first elected actually during the, during the, uh, during the Nixon era. But, but is, it, is it more just that, the, the, that politics has changed so much that uh, even with the best will in the world, somebody like Joe Biden and can't replicate uh, that kind of bipartisanship that you've described there. Yes, I, I well, I think that Biden may remember if he really stretches his memory, he might remember that there were those kinds of uh, meetings and so forth. But p- what has happened is that back in Nixon's days, he had served in the House, he had served in the Senate. Uh, he'd been vice president, and, and as he was moving up into different offices, so were many of the congressmen and, and, and senators and so forth that he that he had met and knew. And these these people were friends. They they didn't go home every weekend to have to raise money out in the hinterlands. They stayed in Washington. They had barbecued each other's homes. Mrs. Nixon used to talk to me about. Uh, the fact that the, the Senate wives, both Republican and Democrat, the Senate wives would get together and make Red Cross bandages. Well, that may seem kind of rinky-dink, but it wasn't they, because the, the, there were relationships formed. And human relationships outweigh the negative of all the politics that's going on today. I wonder as well if you can take us inside the White House during crisis moments. Clearly, we are right in the middle of a crisis today with the, with what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you saw many similar situations. Uh, one that really stood out to me in the book was when uh, the president is trying to decide whether or not to bomb North Korea and uh, ultimately decides not to and uh, and and regrets that decision uh, eventually. Uh, what what's it like to be in the room? when these kind of decisions are being made? What's the atmosphere like uh, in the White House? And I suppose really the implication of the question too, how do you think that President Nixon would be, what would he be doing today in the middle of, of the Ukraine crisis? Uh, yes, uh, he, President Nixon would not go for uh, big summit-type meetings of his advisors. He would expect the Pentagon, the State Department, uh, the National Security Council to be pulling together the best of thinking and reducing that most likely to memorandum form, which he would be studying. Uh, At the same time, 
I believe he would be calling for uh, various books that he was acquainted with where he would read back on uh, the history of the Soviet Union or Russia and, and, and refresh his memory as to historically how they react and what would be going on. So it would be a, he, he would be approaching it uh, two ways, in a very pragmatic way of what are the facts today, but a historical uh, basis, denominator of, you know, what have we seen previously? You know, history is prologue. Uh, wh what is it here that, that I can work with? And, and then, then I believe he would be working uh, back channel. I, 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 so much of what uh, is happening gets uh, with, with this <clears throat> fragmentation that we have in the media and all of the various channels and news things and so forth. There are all these reports, some of which are accurate, some of which are way off the mark. Uh, he, he would elect to keep things much more private and work through official channels uh, using the Russian ambassador, uh, private communications with the Ukraine he, uh, and our nation, NATO allies and downgrade the uh, amount of that is done through the actual media itself. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the first part of that answer, that, that it's less about responding in the moment, uh, reacting to events, but actually trying to situate today's events in their broader historical, political, strategic uh, uh, kind of environment. Yes. Well, uh, Richard, you, you can't ignore the reality of current, bombings and what's going on but but you know nixon was not one who would rush down into the situation room and sit there and watch the reports coming in he would much rather sit in his office uh talk with the key people responsible and have it uh, uh have a certain amount of separation from the emotional impact of sitting in a situation room uh, and, and have more of a thinking approach to, you know, a st strategy approach to it. I mean, he'd get his hands around it and come up with, with what he felt policy-wise he wanted to implement, and then it would go forward. But there's, there was a separation there, a, 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 a amount of time to really strategize it and think it through. So the book is The President's Man, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. It's written by my guest, Dwight Chapin, and published by William Morrow. But for now, Dwight, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Richard, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Damien Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks.